kindergarten through third grade are dismissed for junior church. Hunter just was, um, since there is no special music, I'm just going to take a, a couple of minutes here. Um, I asked, I thought there was kids, not horses leaving. Okay. Okay. Last week, I asked you to um, pray for me and pray for the situation. I am not looking to any more weeks soon like the week I've had. I had the privilege, and I say that, privilege of doing two funerals. I ask you to pray. I will tell you I'm 100% with what Hunter just said because, and if I get emotional, that's fine. Um, it's not fun. But here's what I do know. I felt your prayers, and I thank you for praying. And um, many of you have asked me because um, I had asked you to pray for Saxon Ansel and his family. Uh, you have done that. You have come up to me and said, we're praying for you. People have been telling me that all along. I have absolutely believe in prayer, but in this case, it was above and beyond anything I've experienced in a long time because I could just feel God doing what he wanted to do, and that's a praise. A number of you have asked because uh, obviously a young man dying at 22 years old uh, is not normal, and yes, he did die of a massive heart attack. Uh, that is not a normal thing. So I ask that you would continue praying for the family and friends. <coughs> as uh, you uh, are reminded of that by the Holy Spirit and just continue to uphold them in prayer. This is not something that you deal with in one week's time uh, or even a year's time. This is something that is a big hole in your life. And if you would continue praying, um, I know the family would appreciate that and I would appreciate that you would do that also. With that in mind, we're going to come to the Word of God. If you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 10 to 18. Pastor Peter doesn't think I can cover that many verses in one sermon. He's wrong. I am going to do that. Uh, but uh, if you don't have a Bible, you should find one under a pew chair near you. You can follow along. Uh, as we look, uh, we're going to be going through the book of First Corinthians and seeing what God has to say to us as individuals as well as the church. I remember when I was 16 years old, I went to Lower Dolphin to high school, and back then they had just started driver's education. And I remember very little, except don't accelerate too fast out of a corner. And they were talking to mostly young men because most of us had a lead foot. Anybody understand what I'm talking about? Uh, yeah, I was one of those. I'm not proud of that. But uh, my foot went on the accelerator much more than the brake back in those times. The fact is, I will tell you, I had a, my first car did not have seat belts in. I actually put seat belts in, not because I'm safety conscious, but because driving on back roads on a bench seat, you would slide all over if you didn't have a seat belt. So I actually... Well, race cars drivers put them in, right? I put one out, went to a junkyard, got a seatbelt out of some kind of Chevy and stuck it in my Dodge Dart. So anyway, idiot kid, okay? But you know what? I also had a motorcycle. And I had learned that in driver's ed, 
that if you want to turn right, you get in the right lane so everybody knows you're turning right. It's more important than even your turn signal. If you want to turn left, you get in the left lane so that everybody knows, not just by your turn signal, but by your vehicle, that you're turning right or left. I thought everybody knows that. I was just married, and uh, we had a church softball game at Lebanon Valley Bible Church, and I was coming through Campbelltown. And right at the bank in Campbelltown, there's the road that goes to Bachmanville to the left. And a lady in a Chevy station wagon was halfway over the yellow line like she was turning left to go to Bachmanville. I was not speeding. I had, by the way, the only time this ever happened in my life, I'm not a great ball player, but... uh, I had just hit a Grand Slam home run and won a game. You're kind of high, right? You know, you're feeling good. I am passing this car. It's halfway across, no turn signal, but halfway across the yellow line like they were turning left. And as I was just kind of easing right past the car, this lady turned right as I got to the front door of the car. Well, you know that uh, even at 25 mile an hour, I was now airborne, and I landed up on the street facing the uh, car, uh, sitting on top of my motorcycle, which was flat on the ground, revving full blast. You see, I thought I knew where that lady stood. I thought she was turning left. But I think she thought she was driving a tractor trailer or something and needed to make one of them tractor trailer turns. But that wasn't the case. Dave, what did you say? Easy, okay, okay. No, no, no busting on tractor-trailer drivers, okay? Um, uh, that's not my purpose. The point is, she took a stand that was not what indicated what she was going to do, and I landed up in a walking cast for the next six weeks. The point is, we should know where we stand, and so should everyone else know where we stand. And that's our, our theme for this morning. Where do you stand? Where do you stand in relationship to Christ? Where do we stand as, in relationship as individuals as well as a church? And so this morning, we are going to look at some of those aspects that show us where we should or could stand. The first one, we're going to look at our standing in Christ is complete. Not something that I'm going to work my way to heaven. But when we trust Christ, if you've trusted Christ, this is true of you. You have a firm standing that can never change in Christ. Just like if you were born to parents, and all of you were, you can't change your parents. Those are always your biological parents. That can never change. When you're born into God's family by trusting Jesus Christ, you have a relationship with Him that cannot change. It's a really strong relationship. But sometimes not everybody knows that because we don't live out what is true in our lives. But it says in verse 10, and that's where I'm going to start right now, is I now exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Those that have trusted Christ, as I already said, are complete in Christ. We'll look at what that means in a moment. But... 
he's also going to challenge them by the time we're done. That if you're complete in Christ and you've trusted Christ as your Savior, then you should live that way. But notice what he does. This church has all kinds of problems, but he says to them, you're fighting against me. Nope. You are really a basket case. No, he calls them brethren. You know why? Because they had trusted Christ and they were truly his brothers. And so he comes from that angle. We're in this together. And when you're in ministry, you've heard me say ministry is messy. I have never backed off on that ministry is messy. It really is. Don't get in ministry if you're not willing to get your hands and your feet dirty and get mixed up because sometimes it's really tough. And it's messy. The Apostle Paul knew that exact same thing. And even in the midst of that, in the rest of the book, he deals with all these things that they were doing wrong. He says, you're my brothers. You're my sisters in Christ. And he says, I'm not doing this on my own. Notice there, it says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, when we minister, when we serve Christ, we are serving Christ, not ourselves. It's not about me. It's about the one I serve. And it's about the people that I serve. That's the way it always is. And then he goes on to say that he wants them all to agree and that there would be no divisions. That whole thing about divisions is the word that we get in English, um, is a schism, a split. It's something that was used in those days, and I used to do woodworking, and I was a carpenter at one time, and if you were working on a piece of wood and you got a splinter, that was bad enough, but man, I, if some of you know how this feels, you get a splinter under your fingernail. Oh man, that is just, well, you know what? That's what it's talking about. Something that's splintered off and is doing damage. That's what it's talking about here. It's saying, you have to understand this. I also grew up on a farm and I've done a little bit of excavation work. The same thing is done here. When you plow a field or you turn it over with a shovel or an excavator of any sort or a rototiller or whatever, you are scarring. You're doing a... You're, having a division in the field. You're turning the soil over. That's this concept. You're breaking something up and it's, it's, it's different than it was. That's the concept. He's saying, I don't want you to have those divisions, those schisms, those splits and those tears that are in life. He's not saying everybody should be the same. That's not it at all. He is looking for us to be unified. Not all the same, because all of us are different. Most of you would not want to be standing up here doing what I'm doing. I probably wouldn't want to be doing what you do for a living either, because we're different. And even in the church, not everybody's a teacher, not everybody can lay carpet, and not everybody can do anything. But the point is, we all work together. We're unified in that. It's not, I'm better than you, or you're better than me. I'll guarantee you, you probably heard me say this before, the people that teach our young people, you know, kindergarten, first, second, third grade, as far as I'm concerned, they're more important than I am. Those, those kids, that, the people that were teaching the kids that just left here, yeah, man, I, I, don't take this wrong, don't turn me into uh, child services, but I think if you put me in that group, I'd probably kill somebody and then I would be in jail. You know what, that's not me. 
That's not me. But we have people that just love to teach those young children. Praise the Lord. That's great. But you know what? We're simply working together as a unit. And that's what he's saying. We're supposed to be doing those things. And he says that I want you not to eliminate diversity, but to work together. Some of you have commented, and uh, rightly so, and you heard Peter make the announcement about the carpet. If you look up here, some pretty neat carpet up here. I'm telling you, this carpet project has been going on in my house for six months. Rick, right? About six months? A year and a half. A year and a half. Oh, okay. That, that even makes my illustration even better yet. Because I got to the point, I don't know if Rick did or not, but my wife was in charge of decor. Everything has got to work together. When she'd bring a carpet sample in my house, my ears would click and I would turn them in the off position because I got so tired of hearing, do we want planks or squares? Does this have enough contrast? Is it the right color? Does it have enough teal in it? And then we get the curtains and they're not up yet, but they're coming. And I just got to the point. But you know what? My wife is good at organizing and good at putting these things together so that when you walk in, there's no division. It doesn't kind of drive you crazy because something doesn't match. And I kind of get on her case. It's like, you know, it's good enough, Faye. It's fine. You know, and I get to that point. But you know what? She'll remind me, and I'm in the middle of doing this right now. I'm, I'm building an engine for a tractor. I don't know how long I've been doing this, but it's long. And, I mean, it's a one-cylinder Kohler engine. And there isn't a single part on that engine or a part put in it that hasn't been modified by me and tweaked in some way. I buy brand-new expensive parts, and the first thing I do is modify them. You know, and, and, but I, every little piece has to work together to get that little tiny bit of horsepower. I'm not sure if I'm going to do that or not. I'm going to try. But you know what? That's the not having a division has to work together. And that's what the Apostle Paul was saying here, is you need to work together, all in unity for the end result. Because everything we do is for the glory of God. We've been singing some of those things. Doesn't mean life is easy, but we're to be complete. And that word complete, I don't know, I'm full of illustrations this morning, because the word complete has to do with, the, the and, and it's written the same way as you were sanctified. Something that happened that has full results. Here it says, you were made complete in Christ, and there's the full results. It would be like if you're a, a seamstress, and somebody comes to you with a torn piece of clothing, you would mend it back together. You see, because that garment was no longer complete because it had a rip or a tear or something was wrong with it. You sew it back together. I don't do that. You wouldn't want my sewing just like you wouldn't want me singing. But I can uh, take some glue and I can put wood together and do woodworking and glue it together and it becomes complete. Two pieces of wood made into one. Or I can take a welder. I'm not a welder, but I can weld. And I take... Two pieces of steel and weld them together so they work together and they become a unit. That's what this concept is. That we are to be complete and we're to live that way and work together in that direction. But our standing is not based on personalities. 
This is something that has ripped the church. Uh, all churches have it to some extent, but the church as a whole, it's ripped the church for ever since the beginning. Because it says in verse 11, I have been informed by um, concerning you, brethren, by Chloe's people. Now, this was a lady and her family, and I believe they lived in Corinth, and they said, Paul, you were here and you got this church started really nicely five years ago. And it's a disaster at the moment because these people are fighting each other and they have divisions all over the place. Paul, you need to do something about it. And so, um, and even in chapter five, there was a general overall report, a bad reputation that the church at Corinth had because everybody knew them as the church that had all the problems. And one of the biggest problems were, and it's right there in the verse, it says that there are quarrels among you. That same word quarrels is used in the list of sins that says these are the deeds of the flesh. Straightforward sin. They were just wrangling and in contention and in variance with each other. They absolutely had strife. And it was tearing the church apart from the inside. And he said, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And he said, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. And it continues on. It says, now this I mean, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Paulus, I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. So they said, you know what? The person I follow is this person or this person. And you go, but those last ones, well, that's not a problem, is it? I propose to you, because of the context, they were the worst. There's no doubt about it. The church is based on what Christ has done. He died for our sins on the cross. He rose again. He is the one that started the church. He said, I will build my church. That is not these people. Because when you look at what it's saying here, it's something very different. For example, those that were saying, I'm of Paul. He was that fiery, spitfire kind of guy that started the church. And, uh, you know, if you like a lot of action and things moving, man, he's my man. I'm going to follow him. Now, remember, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with him doing what he did. But he had moved on five years before that. He'd been there for a year and a half and moved on. And they're still going back. We liked it the way Paul did it. And so we're going to keep things the way it was in the beginning. I'll tell you what, I sure hope the church is growing. I hope we're doing more than we did before, than we did in the very beginning. But they're way back there. So they're like, we, we're, we're back with the founder of this church, and we're back the way it was in the beginning. We ain't never done it that way before kind of people, right? Okay, then there were those of Apollos. If you know anything about him from the rest of Scripture, he was a guy very unlike me. He was a good speaker, he was an eloquent speaker. Didn't get all the doctrine right. They had to call him aside and say, Hey, Apollos, you're a great speaker. Everybody likes listening to you, but you don't quite have the doctrine right. But they liked, you know, he just flowery speech. It's kind of like there are people that they just follow some evangelist or pastor that's on TV, and, and they're just enamored by the speaker himself. Paul says, no, don't follow me, don't follow him. And then they're the ones that said, I am of Cephas. You know him as Peter, usually. He was one of the original. Way back in Jerusalem, he was one of those that followed Christ. And uh, 
the people that followed him were most likely Judaizers. What they did is they tried to bring the Old Testament Judaism into the church and say, you've got to become a Jew before you can become a Christian. If you really want to serve God, you have to go back and go back under the old law and all those kinds of things. And uh, those people were still around today where they just want to make it a legal kind of thing and we do the, you know, go back to the original and we've, we, we're just a little bit higher nosed than you are. And then they're the last ones. And these are the ones that I need to be careful. And most of you that come to Garden Chapel, you come to Garden Chapel and you say, I'm a fundamentalist. I believe what the Bible says and I'm, you know, this is the way it is. Here's the problem. These people said, we're of Christ and we are suspect of everybody else. Years, you may not be quite as Christian as me. That's these people. That's why they're the worst. See, Craig's nodding his head. That's nice to know that you agree with me. But the point is, it was spiritual pride. It was spiritual pride. We're of Christ. And everybody else is suspect, maybe a little lower than we, not quite good enough. Their relationship with Christ is not good as, as good as ours. How do I know that it has to be something in that direction? Simply because this. Paul says, these are all divisions and they're all wrong. I believe those last guys took the name of Christ and drug it down to a human level. Horrible what they would do with Christ. And then Paul goes on to say, has, has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Christ said, I died once for all, for everyone. I'm not divided. I didn't die for Jews here and Gentiles here and other people here. And he didn't do any of those things. And then the Apostle Paul, I think he's really niffed at him right now. He says, Paul wasn't crucified for you, was he? The Apostle Paul knew exactly who he was. And the way this is written, it is, it's like, no, no, no. It's like, no, I never did that. I'm a spokesman. I'm the ambassador. I'm the one that brought you the good news. But Christ is the one that has done everything for you. And so uh, he's just like, no, this is not it. But he also says our standing is not in ritual. There are whole churches that are based on, you went through our doctrine, you went through our rituals, and now you're okay with God. That is not biblical at all. In fact, is the thing that is looked at here is baptism. And uh, the Apostle Paul says in verse, um, and it continues in verse 13, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? The thing is, no. What he did was in the name of Christ. He told, all Paul did was point people to Christ. That's my job. That's your job. It's not about you. If it becomes about you, quit. Quit while you're ahead. Quit before you ruin everything. Because it's not. It's about Christ. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about the people we minister to. That's all that matters. He said... Were you baptized in the name of Paul? The answer is, no, you weren't. Paul baptized some people. He said, I thank God that I didn't baptize many of you. He was so niffed at them that he says, I am glad that I wasn't the one that performed this ritual. And if you're not sure what baptism is, we teach, and the Bible teaches, believer's baptism. 
which simply means if you have trusted Christ, it is an outward identification of something that happened spiritually inside. And, and that's it. I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. But he says, I'm glad I didn't baptize very many people. Oh, Crispus, if you remember him, he was from the synagogue. He was the leader of the Jews, and he had trusted Christ. Paul baptized him, and he also baptized his family. We'll get back to that in a second. He says, oh, yeah, I baptized Gaius also. He was one of the first people also that had come to Christ as Paul ministered there. And, uh, but he didn't normally baptize people. He did exactly what Jesus had done when Jesus was, was uh, ministering before him. Because in John chapter 4, it says Jesus was baptizing many people. And then it goes on to say, uh, but it really wasn't Jesus who was baptizing these people. It was his disciples who were doing the baptisms. See, Paul said, and it continues on, I wasn't sent to baptize. I was sent to preach the gospel, to give the good news. But I wasn't here to deal with the things that the local church should deal with. And then he goes on in verse 16 to say, you know what, I, I, I forgot, I did baptize Stephanus and uh, his household. Now there are people, when they look at this, they say, well, the, the Bible teaches infant baptism or baptismal regeneration. Let me back up. Infant baptism is, in essence, one form of that, which simply says that if a baby is baptized, and I do not believe it's baptism because the Bible doesn't teach this, but if you baptize a baby, that makes them a Christian. <clears throat> Excuse me a second. That makes them a Christian. That's baptismal regeneration, where the ritual makes you what you are. The Bible is very clear. Our salvation and our living out the Christian life is always by faith in Jesus Christ, by trusting Him to work in. We simply take Him at His word, put it into practice by obedience and trust. That's how we live. But it's not a ritual. There's nothing wrong with baptism in the Lord's Supper. We, we practice those also. But those do not make us anything that we already are not. They simply symbolize and identify us in particular uh, directions. Because some people said, well, he baptized the household of Stephanus. So, so there had to be children, infants, babies, whatever. It doesn't tell us that. So to put that in there, you have to jam it in there. It's not there. But the places, <clears throat> excuse me a second, places that it does talk about Paul or others baptizing families, it's very interesting how it does it. For example, Acts chapter 16 is probably the, the longest account of that. If you remember, that's the Philippian jailer in the middle of the night, the jail breaks open, there's an earthquake, and Paul and the prisoners go out, and the Philippian jailer was about ready to kill himself. And he said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul gave him the gospel. It was a very, very traumatic scene. And it says in Acts chapter 16, verse 33, he took them that very night uh, and washed their wounds. This is the jailer for Paul and those that were with him. And immediately he, baptized, he was baptized, he and all his household. And most people stopped right there. That's not where the Bible stops, because the next verse says, He brought them into the house and set food before them, and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. 
Oh, he baptized the whole household, but notice what it says. Everyone in that household had already believed, trusted Jesus Christ. In fact, this Christmas, it says that his whole family believed, and he and the rest of the Corinthians were being baptized, and their whole household. Why? Because they had believed. The Bible does not teach in any way, shape, or form infant baptism or baptismal regeneration. It says over and over again, those who had believed were baptized. Why? Did it make them more Christian? The answer is no. But what it did in an outward way showed to the people around them, the church and everyone else, I'm taking a stand with Christ. I have trusted Christ. I've died with Christ. I've been buried with Christ. And I've been risen with Christ. My sins are forgiven. I have a new life. That's all it is. It's a ritual. But our standing is not based on ritual. Our standing is always based on faith. Never anything else anywhere in the Bible. And then, as I already said, uh, Paul said, God didn't uh, send me to baptize. That's for other people to do. So if, if that was the case, if baptism was absolutely necessary for someone to be saved, the Apostle Paul is teaching something that's totally untrue. But it's not. What is necessary for salvation is faith in Jesus Christ. It's not that baptism is pointless or it shouldn't be done. No, it's a command but it's a command to those who already believed to show others that they have indeed trusted Christ. Because you cannot see what happens on the inside of a person. Our standing also, and this kind of goes back to something I've talked about before, is not on clever sermons. I am so glad our standing for Christ does not and is not dependent on a pastor who gets all his words right and uh, is just a flowery kind of guy. Because... <laughs> you guys are all in big trouble if that's the case. But he says, I didn't come in cleverness of speech so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. He said, I didn't come giving you a flowery speech or this highfalutin language or any of those kinds of things. He said, I came and gave you something. The cross of Christ. The word clever there is translated many different ways. It's simply the word that has to do with um, wisdom. He said, I didn't come in human wisdom and give you human things. I gave you what God said. That's the difference. What did God say? It's the cross of Christ. It points to Christ. And that's my last point here this morning. Uh, but he said, you know what? If I do whatever I do, but it doesn't matter what we do in this life. If we do it by human wisdom, you get exactly what the Pharisees did. Remember, remember back in the, the book of Matthew? They stood on the street corners and they prayed publicly. And everybody said, wow, what great prayers these guys have. And when they gave money in the offering, they made sure it clunked really loud. And everybody said, wow, they gave a lot. And, and they fasted, and they looked like death warmed over when they fasted, so everybody would see their fasting. You know what Jesus said? They have the reward in full. What they're going to get, they've already got, because people were just, oh, aren't they wonderful? He said, not the way to do it. 
That's just not it. It's not about those, those outward things because they take away from the work of Christ. That's the important part. So anything that <clears throat> takes away from that, anything that draws attention to the speaker, draws attention to the ritual, any of those things, it takes away from the centrality that the whole concept of the cross is made void. It is human effort. And that's as far as it goes. And so it's easy. You can, you can do things and everybody will pat you on the back, tell you how great you are and all those kinds of things. That's as far as that goes. God's not impressed. Maybe people are, but God's not. And so he says, you make it void if you do that, that kind of thing. It means empty or fruitless or futile. It comes to nothing. But one last point this morning, and that is this. Our standing is in the meaning of the cross. Now, you may have different versions of the, <clears throat> of the Bible, and some, some of them will say in verse 18, for the preaching of the cross is foolishness. Others will say the word of the cross. The word is word in Greek. It's like the word became flesh, Jesus Christ. It's the word of God. It has to do not only with something on the outside, but the whole concept behind it. Oh, it can be spoken, of course. It can be preached. All of those things are true. But it's a bigger concept than that. It's not just simply, well, I, I said the word cross. No, it's the whole concept of the cross. The cross, by the way, doesn't save anyone. The cross was simply the Roman instrument used to crucify Christ. So it's the whole concept of what happened on the cross. A perfectly sinless man, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, was hung on a Roman cross. There are those that, and, and I've, I've been around these, my wife comes from this direction, where you don't, you don't get into the Old Testament, because the Old Testament is a God of, of wrath and judgment, and it's bloody because they're offering sacrifices, and he told them to go in and wipe out whole nations of sinful people. We don't want anything to do with that God. But we want the God of the New Testament, the God, the God of love. And that sounds good until you start thinking about something. What is the most horrendous thing that is ever recorded in the Bible? It's not in the Old Testament. A lot of, a lot of hard things recorded there. The hardest thing, the most horrendous thing, the most unjust thing ever recorded in the Bible is in the New Testament. It's the crucifixion of Christ. See, all the people they destroyed in the Old Testament were sinful people, and God said it's time to wipe them out, so go in and wipe them out. Nobody likes that. I don't like it either. Those animals that were sacrificed, they were sacrificed because people were sinful, and they had to give a sacrifice. But in the New Testament on the cross is a perfectly sinless, never sinned in word, deed, or in any other possible way, dying absolutely cruelly on a cross. He did nothing to deserve it. That's horrendous. It looks like foolishness. That's what it says here. It's the opposite of wisdom. Looks like foolishness. Why would God do that? Here's why He would do that. Because He loves me, 
He loves you. He loves you. He loves us all. He loves the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, God loved us enough that he was willing to ask Jesus Christ to die for me, to pay my sin, to deal with all the terrible things that I have done. He came and did that for me. That's real love. It's also real horrible. Because the Old Testament, we understand that. But there's no understanding. It's foolish. Why would Christ? Christ didn't do anything wrong. Ever, all of us die because of, of the sin nature. We were born with it. That's the wage of sin is death. We die because we were born. That's basically what it comes down to. But Jesus Christ died in our place. That's the concept of the cross. And yeah, it's horrible. And so, by the way, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. They are not two separate ones. This one just leads up to that one time, the concept of the cross. And he says, and he's very straightforward. So you look at it, it looks like foolishness. But it's only foolishness to those who are perishing. They go, who wants that? But to us who are being saved, those that have trusted Christ, we look back. And that is the greatest thing that has ever happened in all the world. That somebody died for me, took my place, gave me forgiveness of sin, a home in heaven, a life worth living here and now. That's what Christ has done for all of us. He says, we look at it and we say, that's the power of God. Not human wisdom, but God's power. Everything that I do, everything that you do, particularly in ministry, but all, all of your life, because let's face it, we do not separate the sacred and the secular. Your life is one life. You probably heard me say this before, but every now and then I'll tell my tractor pull buddies, if I am a different person... Sunday morning than I am today, Saturday. I'm a hypocrite. Don't listen to a single thing I tell you. Because you know what? My life is in Christ. It's in the concept of the cross. And it doesn't matter if it's Monday morning or Sunday morning or Saturday afternoon. It doesn't matter when it is. I am that same person because I'm the one that Christ died for. It's 40-some years since I've trusted Christ. I always thought that Christians had a boring life. I really did. And others have indicated that to me. It's like, you're a Christian, man. You don't get to do anything fun. I'm telling you, they have no clue as to what they're talking about. Because the life that I have, whew, it's like, hang on, because you're going for a ride. Because God is working. And he wants to use us. And he wants to use us as a whole, in unity, not in divisions, not fighting and quarreling and having strife between us. He wants us to see what Christ has done and trust Christ. And then as a result, work together to bring light to a, a world that's dark and dreary and lost and has no clue as to what, which end is up at times. Because to them, what we do looks like foolishness. But praise the Lord. The Holy Spirit works in people's lives, showing them 
that Christ is definitely the one that has died for them, to give them new life, a life that's worth living. Let's all bow our heads as we pray together this morning. Father, we've covered a lot of territory this morning. It's, it's, it's almost overwhelming, and it is overwhelming, of what you have done. We don't deserve any of this. We couldn't earn it. We couldn't pay for it. It's just no way we could do that. But we thank you that out of your great love, you came to earth, took on a body, lived a perfect sinless life, and then died on the cross to pay for my sin, to bear my punishment so that I could have a new life in Christ. That, that whole concept of the cross and the forgiveness and the new life that comes with that could be mine. Lord, I have no idea what people are thinking right now, but I do know that you want people to know for sure that they're complete in Christ, that they've been set apart for him, that they have that new life, have forgiveness of sin. And I pray that if anyone isn't sure that they've trusted Christ, that just in the quietness of their own mind and heart, that they would just say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know that, and I now believe that Christ died for me, and I want to trust you for my Savior. Thank you for forgiving my sin. Thank you for giving me new life. Because, Lord, you said that whoever comes to you, you would not cast out. You would not turn away. Lord, I pray that you would do your perfect work in that way. We thank you for everything you're going to do through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. God bless. Go with God and be a blessing to someone else.